Hello and welcome to week eight of our discussion of the four kitot, the four groups of people who will not merit seeing, meeting the divine. So we're talking about liars. And as we talk about liars, Ben last time in his list of liars had mentioned the idea of midvar sheker tirchak. And so there are different, the different complications or different versions of lies that you have is a topic that we spoke about. Ben gave different examples of, we'll see more of it going forward, <clears throat> but I thought it would be enlightening to uh, maybe review or discuss this phrase in the Torah, Midvar Sheker Tirchak. And it's a phrase that always means a lot to me because many, many, many years ago, I had the opportunity to hear Nechab speak one time. She used to speak, there used to be an educator's trip to Israel every summer. They would come for like three weeks and they would have various things. And I think one of the highlights was they would get a class with the already elderly Nechab and one time a teacher of mine was on the trip. He said, come one morning, you should hear her speak. So I went to hear her speak. And she asked the following really interesting question. She said, if you ask students whether the Torah, where the Torah says you're not allowed to lie, they don't know, right? But it's a verse in Parshat Mishpatim, Midvar Sheker Tirchat. Now that's not so simple. The truth is that there are some people who will limit this verse to... Uh, to certain instances, as we saw last time, some were limited to court cases and things like that. But she was taking the more maximalist, maximalist version. It means don't lie. She said, but if you ask kids who come out of a class that learn Mishpatim, and you say to them, what's an Ebed Ivri and how does an Ivri work? They know so much. She said, you know, they know that Ebed Ivri is for six years and the, and the master, the person who has the right to their labor can also give them a wife. And then the kids will stay with the master. And if the person says that he wants to stay in the Abdut, you can pierce his ear. They know all this stuff. So she says, why is it? They're both in Parshat Mishpatim. Why is it that the kids know one thing and not the other? She said, because the the elements or the issues of being an Eved, Ivri, a Hebrew indentured servant, a Jewish indentured servant, they're a little complicated. And when the teacher gets up to them, therefore, the teacher might give a homework, might do a chart, might give a quiz to make sure that the kids caught on to it. But when it comes to Midvar Sheker Tirchak, the teacher will say, yeah, you're not supposed to lie and move on from there. And her point was that what we pay attention to matters just in the fact that we pay more attention to it. And she was suggesting to teachers that they needed to be careful about where they devoted their attentions and their energies. And I think the same thing. I, I, I tell the story because I think it's a very interesting story. It was a, an interesting moment in my life for me. But also I tell the story because if you're still joining me in this in this podcast, in this series of discussions, and I hope you are, and if you are, I'd love to hear from you. My email address is G-R-O-T-H-S-T at gmail.com. First initial G, six, first six letters of my last name, Gidon Rothstein at gmail.com. But these are ketote. These are groups that I came to because Rabbeinu Yonah decided that they needed more attention. Because as I pointed out in the earlier shiurim, in the first year, I think, Rabbeinu Yonah spends like a third of his third shahr. And his third shahr is longer than all the other shahrim combined. And he spends a third of it on these four groups. Other people don't spend as much time on it. I think Rabbeinu Yonah strengthens the message about the significance of each of these groups. So now I thought we would look into this Midvar Sheker Tirkak and see where it comes up in Jewish discussions and halachic discussions, and see what that means for us in our understanding
of aside from what Rabbi said, but our understanding of what it means to care about truth and falsehood. So the first place, and a well-known place, is that the Gemara Ketubot presents on Daf Yud Zayin, page 17, presents a debate between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel about how we sing the praises of a bride. The first, the, the, the Beit Shammai view was, Kala Kemochihi. Now, Kala Kemochi literally means the Kala as she is. But presumably, Beit Shammai mean, it's the job of people attending a wedding to find things that are impressive or praiseworthy about the Kala, about the bride, and praise her to the groom. Because remember, in a world where brides and grooms don't necessarily know each other so well before they get married, the, the part of what the, the, the wedding guests are doing is trying to foster and help the couple build a real union. So one of the ways is if you praise the bride to the groom and then he knows or he's excited about her, that'll help, uh, we're hoping, that'll help create a nice relationship. So they say the way you do it is you find something about her, meaning something truthful, but something about her that will be good. Whereas Beit Hillel say no, we say Kala Na'ava Chasuda. We say the Kala is beautiful. And Chasuda probably means either attractive or has good character. It means, but but their point is, we say basically the same thing for every Kala. It's like I used to remember going to like uh, Bat Mitzvahs and watching girls compliment each other. And it's always, oh my God, you look so amazing. Right, 12-year-old girls I'm talking about. Meaning, you say the same thing because if you say something different, then it's like uh, a long time ago when Harry met Sally. They have all discussion about whether if you say somebody's really interesting, really nice, or really whatever it is, you mean they don't look good. So there are certain praises that people expect to hear when it comes to a kala, when it comes to a bride. The social convention is you say, "Oh, the bride looked beautiful." Not even that the Gemara thinks that that's such an important thing. I think Beit Hillel's point is. That unless you say that, there'll be like the worry. Oh, you're telling me she's got, you know, she's great at school because she's not pretty or she's not enjoy fun to be around. So that's what they say. So Bikshamai said to Beit Hillel, I don't understand. If she's lame or blind, you're going to say, Kala she has other good qualities. Bikshamai aren't saying she doesn't deserve to get married or that the groom should be unhappy. She'll think he's getting damaged goods. She's got other great qualities. But you're insisting on saying kalana vachasuda, and yet the, the Torah says this is Beit Shammai quote. They say, but what about midvar sheker tirchak? So Beit Hillel say, but according to you, if somebody bought something and it was a bad purchase, they you know they buy a piece of art and they pay a lot of money and it's just ugly, right? So the Beit Hillel say, do you think you should praise it or you think you should denigrate it and tell them they made a bad deal? So Beit Hillel drew from that what seems to be an obvious example to them, they draw the conclusion that, and this is what the Gemara says, People should always find a way to get along with other people to the extent that you can. In other words, Beit Hillel are making the claim that, now, it is important to me and to our discussion that Beit Hillel don't say, doesn't mean that. Beit Hillel clearly agree with Beit Shammai that we're not supposed to be saying things that aren't true. In this Gemara, it's clearly in a non-judicial context, a non-formal you know, non context. It's just like people talking. And yet it's clear one is not supposed to say things that are untrue. That's, to me, an important thing because, unfortunately, I think we live in a world where people don't remember that anymore. But Behilel say, but there is a countervailing thing. In certain circumstances, they don't say it about all things. 
But in certain circumstances, the two times we have it in the Gemara are uh, somebody's getting married or somebody has already purchased something. We're not supposed to tell them the full truth because we don't want them to feel bad because it's already done. Right at the wedding, they're already married. So better for us to try to do our best to help them build a wonderful marriage with each other, which is generally possible. I think the Gemara thinks is generally possible between two people of goodwill. And also, if somebody's already bought something. I, mean, I have a friend who once, there was a, in Yerushalayim somewhere, maybe in Meisharim, there was a guy who was known to be the expert on what's a good etro. So he would sit there in Meisharim, you'd bring him your etro and you'd show it. And my friend bought an etro, was very excited about it. And he went to the guy and the guy looked at it and looks up and down and then he turns to me and says, did you pay already or not? Which is crushing. Because it means that if you paid already, I'll tell you it's fine. But if you didn't pay, I'll tell you you get a better one. Right? So here, Beit Hillel are saying that. But when people have already paid for things, we should try to make them feel better. Now, the Shulchan Aruch on this topic, Shulchan Aruch says, We follow Beit Hillel. We say, Right? And the Shulchan Aruch says, Even if she's not na'ah. That sounds like you're allowed to just straight out lie. The Beit Shmuel, however, says, Right, he's explaining. He's explaining though that it does say midvar sheker yirkak. He says yesh letareitz that devarashi naasa shei naa b'maaseh. He's quoting the prisha. The prisha was a commentary on the um, on the on the tour, but the Beit Shmuel is transferring to Arshochan Aruch, which and says that the idea is that the word naa. Well, we almost always take it to mean physically beautiful, physically attractive. It could mean she's just such a wonderful person. She's going to do wonderful things in your household. She's going to help you build a wonderful home. And that's what it theoretically could mean. It's, it's, it could mean that it's not a full-out lie. We'll talk about that more, God willing, next time. we talk about two-edged language, right? That's another issue that comes up. So in general, we don't like any of this. But here, we have a reason. It says the Arach HaShulchan, who lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s, wrote these wrote his Sefer, he says, to big a mitzvah, it's important to help the Khatan and Kala be happy with each other and to make celebrate their wedding and to say she's not a chasuda. And he throws in something else. He says, Shechuchel Chesed Mashuch Aleha. That now, Chuchel Chesed literally means like a great, a, a thread of attractiveness or of kindness. But he's referring, I believe, there's a Gemara Megillah that says that Esther. There's all discussion in the in, in the midrash about whether she was the, the, the Megillah makes it seem like she was beautiful. There's a midrash that says that she wasn't actually physically beautiful, but she had a chut shel chesed. She had this quality to her that even though she wasn't today, we might say conventionally attractive, you found yourself being attracted to her. And so the Archbishop says that's what you could be meaning here as well, even if she's really not objectively attractive in any way. It's not a lie because you could say first off, like the Beit Shmuel said. She acts well. She does nice things. And also, there are women who, if you looked at them, objectively not thinking about it, you wouldn't think they were attractive. But when they're, when they're active, when they're moving, when they're alive, they're very attractive. Right? So that's what he suggests we can be saying here. The point being that the Beit Shmuel and the Rafa Shulchan are trying to find ways to say it's not a lie. It's a, it's a, Double entendre, it's using a secondary version of the meaning of the words, not a full lie. He actually goes on to say the Arachashulchan. She has some kind of a obvious physical issue. You can't say she doesn't have it. Shezehu Sheker Gamur. Because that's just a flat out lie. 
Rather, he says, and this is more like what Beit Shammai, I think, what I think Beit Shammai were trying to say, you have to not focus on that. So if she, you know, let's say she's an amputee for whatever reason, you can't say, oh, she's got all her limbs and it's so wonderful. I don't know why you would say that, right? But, but you know, let's say, God forbid, but let's say her eyes had been taken out in some way. You can't say her eyes show her to be, you can't, I don't even know how to say the right lie for a mom, but you can't, her, you know, she's got a big scar down her cheek. You can't say, oh, what unblemished skin. Right? You can't do that. But you can do other things. You can say, so that's the first step. So the first step was the issue of how we praise brides to their grooms. The goal being to help the two of them feel good about each other and therefore build as uh, productive, as happy a marriage as they can. And that's what we're, that's what we're discussing. Now, there's a Gemara in Shivuot, which has a long list. And I can see it ahead of time. This long list is about Torah scholars and judges. And you could theoretically say it's only in those contexts because uh, that's where truth matters so much because we're judging things. You could say that. I think, though, that if you see that where truth matters, we go this far to protect the truth. It means that in other ordinary situations, we also go as pretty far in protecting the truth. But we'll work our way through them. And you can tell me if I convinced you or not. So, Bet says... How do you know that a dayan, that a judge should not make? Now, I want to pause on this for a second because this is a, an important quality in life in general. So Rashi tells us what sanigron means, that he's judged something and he's not sure he's right. He's thinking maybe he's not correct. So the instinct is to find ways to shore up our original perspective. And Rashi says that's what the Gemara, that's what we mean when we say you shouldn't make a sanigron. Lo yachazik tvarav lavi raayot laamidam. You to find proof to prove that you're right because the person's embarrassed to have to go back on it. The Rashi says no. What the judge needs to do is to try to find the truth and the real and the full truth. That's what he has to go back and do. Right. So. And the Chosh, and the Shulchan Aruch and Chosh Mishpat Yud Zayin seventeen paragraph eight same idea a Dayan who's judges a thing and he's not sure he was right and his heart inside of him thinks that maybe he was wrong he's not allowed to just work to prove himself right right that's what we are tempted to do I thought I was wrong I looked into it I found that I found the reason to say that I was right what we really should be doing ideally and this is the goal is be trying to find out what the truth is. And the Gemara back in the Gemara now says the way we know that that's true is because it says midvar sheker tirchak. So notice the the distancing from a lie here is not a lie at all. He made originally did his best job to come to the verdict. It's after the verdict, after he's already gone through it, he's beginning to think he was wrong. He's worried about it, and we have to worry that the. The human instinct is to defend oneself and to make sure that one finds out that what was right. And the Gemara says that's not what you should be doing. You should be just looking for the truth. Next case. Minayim ledayan, still with a judge. Shelo yeshev talmid bor That you have a student. Now a talmid bor usually means a student who doesn't know anything. A bor is a person who not only doesn't know anything, it's more than that. Who has no like, doesn't have even like a good character, doesn't know what good qualities are. Can't have a person like that Sitting before you, why not? Now, what's the lie there? What's the sheker? So the Rashi says, 
but he shouldn't lead him astray. Now, I could easily imagine somebody saying, what? I am a great Torah scholar. I know how to judge these cases. He's a beginning student, knows barely anything. I have to worry that he's going to mislead me? And I think Rashi thinks the answer is yes. That's where the Midrash Sheker Tirchak comes in in this case, because we are less invulnerable, less immune to being convinced of the wrong thing and of falsehoods than we think we are. So you have a guy sitting there, he'll say something, we know he's a boor, we know he doesn't really know anything, but he might say something that sounds convincing about how to handle the court case, and the judge will, again, we're not, notice, we're not talking about anybody being malicious here. It's the worry that, the it's, it's the awareness that finding truth is more difficult than we might naturally think that it is, and therefore we have to be extremely careful about it. Another one, same Gemara. We've got a whole list of these. Another one is the handling of a dying knows or an or a witness knows that the other person, meaning I'm invited to be on a court. I happen to know that another guy who's already on the court as a judge is actually a gazler. He's actually a, a guy who steals money openly. Other people don't know that, but I know that about him. And therefore, he's disqualified from being a judge. Or I witnessed something. And I'm invited to come to court to give testimony. And I find out that the other guy who says he witnessed it is a gosler who's not, is not valid to give testimony. He's not allowed to give testimony. Minayin, the Gemara says, Minayin shalit the you know, How do we know that you're not supposed to join? Now notice again, in this case, the judge is planning on judging to verdict, however, what the right verdict is. The witness thinks he did witness whatever it is. And yet by banding together, with people who are not validly allowed to do so, the Gemara thinks that, that would again be an example of Midrash Sheker Tirchak. Another example, the Gemara says there, still on Shavuot of Lamed Amad Aleph, Lamed Amad Bet, uh, the Gemara says, let's say a judge knows that a certain din is Miruma. Now, a din Miruma means a din, a, a judgment, a case that has been set up falsely. Meaning one of the litigants, the judge suspects, he's not sure, but the judge suspects that one of the litigants is clever enough and devious enough that all the evidence points to victory for that litigant. And the judge thinks it might not be true. But he can't prove it, he doesn't know it. So the Gemara says, how do you know that a judge in that situation may not say? The temptation is to say, well, I checked the witnesses, they're saying the truth. By, by, you know, court procedure, I should render a verdict. And then who'll be in trouble? Either the witness will be in trouble if they're lying, meaning I checked them out as well as I could, and they stuck with their testimony, they gave valid testimony, but I think they're lying, or something along those lines. So how do you know that you can't say, well, that's their problem? That's another example of midvar sheker tirchak. You have to stay far away. Now, when Chosha Mishma, when the, when the Shulchanach brings this idea, he gives more examples. And he says, the judge can't just say, I'll give a verdict. So the Shokhanar says the judge has to keep looking and investigating as if it was a capital case and try to find the way where the, where the trickery, where the lying, where the deceit is, right? Or maybe, right, that it doesn't have to be even. It could be he thinks there's like an actual lie going on. But it could be he doesn't trust the witnesses, but he can't find a way to, to invalidate them. Or... He thinks that the guy bringing this to the court, the litigant, is so uh, skilled, he got the witnesses to come and convince them they had seen what he wants them to have seen. 
You know, he finds a way to have them see, I don't know, a loan, which wasn't really a loan. It was really a payback of money. And therefore, the other person doesn't really owe any money. But the witnesses saw somebody accept this money from them and thought of it as a loan. So if the judge thinks, so that in that case, the witnesses are telling the truth. And yet it's a lie. So the judge has to be alert to that, right? Or he might think there are other things that are hidden that, that people don't want to reveal and things like that. And so in those cases as well, the judge has to be careful, says the Gemara, says the Shokhar Hosh Mishpah. Then he gives another example. He may not uh, come to verdict. Right? He thinks, he, he would think that Ella, what does he have to do? He has to recuse himself. Now, what will be the recusal be? The recusal will be, I'm not comfortable with this court case. I can't render a verdict. And he'd say, if there's somebody else who is confident, they know what the verdict is, let them do it. But it means you have to back out. right? And the Shukharach throws in, These are among those things that Nobody can ever tell the judge that know that the judge did or didn't believe this. He, if he gave a verdict, everything okay, he gave a verdict. The answer is he's got to know it. And the Shukharach throws in that when the Rosh, was an important, important rabbi, when the Rosh had a case like that in front of him, and he was pretty sure that one of the litigants was shaping the case and, and tricking and doing like that, not only would he recuse himself, he would give the other litigant so if it's somebody trying to extract money from somebody else, he would give the person the money trying to be extracted from a note that said, the rush says, this is not a court case to get involved with. And the hope was that other judges would respect that and that the guy trying to get the money, who the rush is pretty sure is lying or cheating, would not find the court that was willing to, to give him a verdict supporting what we think is his uh, deceitful and wrong and lying thing. But... This all for the judge is an example of midrash sheker tirchak, right? So that's um, that's another example. Um, I'm sorry, I'm just looking back for the gemara. The gemara gives another example. Now starting on lamed aleph, lamed aleph. I'm sorry, on lamed aleph, lamed aleph. The gemara says, "What about this? Imagine a student is learning in yeshiva, right? For and." A court case, because remember in those days, judges and great rabbis were the same person. So a court case comes before, before the teacher. The student sees it and he sees that while the, ju- the, the, the teacher is going gonna, is gonna to rule in favor of the wealthier person, let's say, and he sees that there's merit in the case, in the case of the poorer person. So he might think to himself, I should stay quiet because it's going to be, it's going to be bad because the rich person will hate me or the, you know, or whatever it would be, but he's not allowed to stay quiet. So now we're already saying Rosh Hashanah is staying quiet even. Until now, we've been talking about rendering verdicts, joining in testimony. Here, he's, here the Gemara is saying even just refraining from speech will be considered a sort of a lie. Another example that the Gemara brings up is the student sees that the master, the teacher, is making a mistake. And he thinks to himself, you know what I'll do? I'll wait till he's done and he'll render his verdict. And then I'll tear it down and I'll rebuild it and I'll show that I'm the one who figured this out and I'll get the credit. Like I think that's also in Rosh Hashanah. Now there, there's actually no lie whatsoever. It's you're staying quiet, the other person's making a mistake, and then you're correcting the mistake. So it's not even like you're going to leave it as if it would go to the wrong verdict. 
but there too, letting the original verdict come out. When you know that original verdict is erroneous and you have a way of demonstrating that it's incorrect, that too is Midrash Sheker Tirchak. Sticking with the student for a second, let's say the uh, a teacher says to a student, you know me, and you know me that I would never make things up. You know me that I would never cheat anybody out of money. I'm telling you that I have money that so-and-so owes me money. But I only have one witness. But I want the money. So the Gemara originally says, how do you know the student can't join in and give the testimony? So you check out your clock. You stay far away from lying. So the Gemara says, that's not saying far away. That's actual, that's actual lying if he's going to give testimony. The Torah says... Now, this is court case specific. You can't give false testimony against your friend. The Gemara says, no, no, the case is that the teacher says, whoever it is, right? It doesn't have to be a teacher. It could be a boss. It could be an employer. They use the example of a teacher because a teacher is more likely to be a person whose fundamental honesty you trust. So the teacher is just frustrated, right? That guy owes me $1,000. I only have one witness. He's going to take an oath. If I bring the one witness, he'll take an oath. He'll lie about it. I'll be out 1000 bucks. I don't want to be out 1000 bucks. So here's what I'll do. You come and also give testimony. But that's a lie. You can't, you, he can't mean that. Where says, you're right. We don't mean that he means that. What we mean is, he says to the guy, do me a favor. Just come and stand next to my witness. Don't say anything. And, and because, because the teacher's saying, we won't even have to go that far. Once he sees I have two witnesses, he'll pay the money. Where says, that's still prohibited. It still means I check out your cock. Because the student in that situation will be giving the impression that he knows the testimony when he doesn't. That's the second clock. Another example. What if somebody owes me money and uh, and I shouldn't say, you know what I'll do? And I think they owe me money. I think they're going to deny it. But if they deny it completely, that's where the case ends as far as Allah is concerned. And I'm worried about that because I need the money or because I don't want them to get off so easy. So if I ask them for the hundred they owe me, and they say, I don't owe you a hundred, then it's all over for me. So my temptation is, I'll say, I'll demand 200. And then he'll say, no, I only owe you a hundred. Right? And then he'll have to, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, the case is I apologize. The case of Gemara is, he owes me a hundred. And you might think to yourself, but he also owes me other things. And the other things he owes me, I can't get out of him. I can't get a shmua out of him. I can't get anything out of him. He just doesn't pretend that he doesn't owe it to me. So you know what I'll do on this case, where I know he agrees that he owes me a hundred. I'll set. I'll claim two hundred. He'll deny it. He'll say only one of me because that's the truth. But the halacha is if he's a modeb mitzat, if somebody admits to part of a claim against them, they have to take an oath. And then another halacha is once somebody's taking an oath, will be megalgel shivuot. We'll ask that person. We'll require that person to also take oaths about other things they really shouldn't have taken oath over. So this guy's got a clever trick. He's not lying. He's lying about his claim, but he doesn't expect to get money he doesn't deserve. He just expects to be able to get a shvu out of a guy that he doesn't really deserve. That's also Midrash Sheker Tirchak. Another example. Let's say somebody owes me a hundred. No, somebody owes me a hundred. And no, somebody, I owe somebody a hundred. And the guy claims 200 for me. Now he's doing the wrong thing for sure. Let's say he made a mistake, whatever it is. The other is 200. If I say I only owe you 100, I'm going to have to make take an oath, and I don't want to have to take an oath. So I might think to myself, you know what I'll do? I'll deny it completely in court. If I deny it completely in court, before there's other, there are shvot that come in anyway. 
But if I do not completely in court, I don't have to make other shavuot that he's going to try to force on me. And then when we get out of court, I'll give him the hundred. And that way, he won't be able to bring these other claims against me. Still, Midrash Shekhet And then another example. Let's suppose that three of us are owed $100 by a certain guy. We know. We all there. The three of us were there. I was there. He gave me 20. You, he gave you 40. He took borrowed 40 from you and 40 from you. And he's not paying us back. So how do we know that you can't have one of them say, I'll claim the 100. And the two of you give the testimony. And here again, there's no real lie because they actually think they're owed 100. There's a manipulation of the system in ways the system was not supposed to be manipulated. That's an example of Okay, two more examples and then we'll be done. But Einstein, Shibaladin, two people come to a court case. One is wearing, you know, rags. One is very poor. He's wearing rags. One is wearing a very fine coat, a very fine outfit, a nice suit. How do you know how luckily we say to the person in the fine suit, listen, either buy him a suit or wear something. This is something that's so interesting about American law they don't even think about. Either buy him a suit of your of your quality or wear clothing of his quality. How do you know? Again, that's the Vashakat because the impression people get off of the clothing that people wear also shapes how they um, how they experience themselves. And also, even Rashi says, in terms of the litigant himself, the poor litigant will think he's so rich. Everybody's going to believe him. He's got such nice clothing. Won't even remember things to say to prove his case. So all that, you know, so again, I, I'll tell you straight, I've seen certainly Achronim who will say this is all about quirky, it's only about that. But I think if you think, just think about the examples, these are all things that are easily transferable to real life and, and also are the kinds of things that foster falsehoods. Last example for today in that Gemara and Shavuot, how do you know that a judge can't listen to one litigant without the other one there? Now that's just about listening. The answer is, I'm sorry, it was two more examples. And then the last example, this is the last example, I'm sorry, is how do you know that one uh, one litigant shouldn't... Yeah, I'm sorry, the same example. One is the, the judge isn't allowed to listen. And the other one is, if the judge is willing to listen, the litigant himself should not be making claims or trying to uh, frame his case for the judge before the other one comes. Now, theoretically, just because the other one's not there doesn't mean that you're saying anything different. And we're not saying the person is lying in any conscious way. Nonetheless, that's still also because it shapes the, the perceptions and it shapes the way we see things. So these are just a bunch of examples from a, a remarkable Gemara that all support our idea that we're in is talking about with, with Sheker reminds of exactly how far it goes in what we consider Sheker. Because a lot of times today, people think it's not Sheker unless I'm actively lying. And so our Gemara, I think, is a nice, which, and by the way, if you look in Shulchan Aruch or in the Rambam, all of these appear in the Rambam and the Shulchan Aruch. So this isn't just me finding a Gemara that nobody used. These are all quoted lalacha by real poskim. So that's, uh, that's the piece of it that I wanted to share today, that to think about what truth means and how far the Gemara requires us to go in just thinking about truth and the search for truth and presenting things in their true way. Right, so next week we'll talk about double-edged language, situations where we are allowed to be less than fully truthful and what it means to be less than fully truthful, what it looks like and how it is. So that's our discussion for today about the importance of getting as close to truth as we can. Thanks for joining us and I hope to see you next time.